Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. I thank you so much for joining us as we get set to talk about all kinds of interesting things here on the program. And we do come your way every Sunday at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. The podcasts are both on richarddugan.com as well as SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM. And there's a link to our guest's website where you can go to continue your transformational evolutionary process. We certainly hope that you will do that. And we also would like to uh, solicit, yes, uh, your support financially. If you're able to do so, we thank you for that. Uh, we are looking for uh, any support we can get. We'll take energetic as well. For the financial support, we do have a PayPal and Patreon account for your security as well as ours. And uh, we hope that you will do what you can. This is also 2020, the year of perfect vision. And we certainly hope that you will take that time to spend some time going within and uh, seeking out that guidance, that inspiration as well as the peace and calm that we're all looking for these days. And uh, we certainly are grateful uh, to those who uh, not only have supported us, but will support, us, uh, will support us in the future. And we are also grateful for those of you who are participating in 2020, the year of perfect vision. Today's program is going to be a little bit different for you. And it's, we're, it's a, a conversation that we are going to have with Adam Dunn. And he has uh, co-edited a series of stories called Fractus Europa. Fractus Europa. He's going to describe what that's all about. And we thank him for joining us here on the program. And one of my first questions has to do with uh, pandemics. And, and this story, of course, deals with uh, uh, some interesting uh, scenarios that have been uh, put forth. Uh, but um, talk to us a little bit about uh, your understanding and awareness of pandemics, not just in the United States, but globally for that matter. Thank you for having me, Mr. Dugan. You know, I think back to other great outbreaks in history. Uh, people often think of the Black Death, but that was fairly short, definitely not sweet, but fairly short, three years mm -hmm. in Europe. But bubonic plague has been with us throughout history. And the one really notable one I remember was in the sixth century when the Emperor Justinian was trying to reconquer uh, Italy from the Goths. And plague broke out in the ranks and he couldn't keep up the fight because the troops were getting sick. Now that outbreak lasted over a decade. And if we think that we can put a timetable on this thing now, which we have just discovered less than six months ago, uh, I don't know who we think we're fooling. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I find it interesting. It was said back in 2016 or 17, I think it was 17, uh, that one way or the other, Donald Trump would be our last president. Uh, either he would destroy the political system as we have known it, or he will blow us all up. And I'm starting to think that he may still be our last president. The way things are going. It's just amazing. Um, I'd like to be able to trust authorities in spite of I suppose my more uh, my greater inclination uh, to lean on the '60s phrase: <clears throat> "Don't trust anyone or uh, question everything," and so on and so forth. Don't trust authority, what have you. And uh, it's like we can't; we just can't uh, because we don't know what the hell they're telling us. We don't know what it means. Uh, I love how many journalists have become epidemiologists. 
I love how the president has become an epidemiologist and yeah, a medical well, expert and on and on. And it's like, yeah, it, everyone has, has become a, a very self-styled expert, but it's, yeah. it's indicative, I think, of um, these are symptoms of a, of, a, of a broader and more insidious underlying cause, I think, which is uh, cooler heads have long since uh, ceased to prevail. In fact, they're getting chopped off. And yeah. uh, it's, it's more of a, of a massive groundswell, not even popular or nationally. It's almost as a species. We seem to be throwing over thought in favor of emotion, I guess, because emotion is so much easier and we've gotten so, so used to instant gratification for all of our needs that it's so much easier to feel and to react. Uh, than it is to actually have to think through things. I keep telling my kids this. I said, you know, getting mad and frustrated about something, that doesn't solve problems. That creates more of them or mm -hmm. prolongs them. Oh, uh, <laughs> you your emotions out of it. Uh, you, move, you go from feeling to thinking, and then you work the problem. That's how you solve it. That's how you make progress is mm -hmm. take your emotion out of it. Don't react. Uh, you have to, to actually take the time to slow things down to the speed of thought, which I know sounds like an oxymoron, but when you're dealing with impulses, which are beyond instantaneous, uh, that this is, it, there's, there's almost too much seductiveness uh, in, in acting on impulse because thought has simply become, it, 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 people, as you say, you know, there's a popular disgust with and distrust of institutions, I think, because they say, if you guys are gonna overthink and overanalyze things, this is gonna just lead to perpetual gridlock. And this yeah. is what us into these problems. Therefore, why think when you can feel? Feeling gets results. Feeling will burn down police stations. Feeling will actually get, uh, you know, light up social media and so forth. Well, feeling is the thing that can actually set the world on fire. And it has at key moments like 1914, 1939, you know, the list goes on and on. And if you succumb to feeling uh, and you simply just want to circumnavigate a cool, dispassionate thought, uh, then we're in for a whole bunch of problems, I think, that go beyond whoever is currently contaminating the Oval Office. Yeah. Well, I, I got an email not long ago uh, telling me that there was a greater virus out there than the coronavirus. And it's not one of the traditional ones that you might think of. Uh, they said that it is uh, three parts. It is one part ignorance, one part fear, and one part lack of faith. And um, I thought, wow, boy, that's, that is absolutely accurate. And it's what you're talking about. And it's the fear where you're in your emotion. But your fear is based upon a lack of information, a lack of accurate information that you can count on. And we all can't immediately right now go and, and, and get our epidemiological degrees. It's, we don't have the time, uh, nor the inclination for that matter. Um, and, uh, so I, I just find it interesting that, um, the, the people of faith out there who I have been amongst for many, many years, I worked for 15 years for a Christian station and, um, some of them are, and it's amazing how this virus has become politicized. Uh, but, it, but I'm sure there are some people who are on the side of, this is not a big deal. Just knock this off and, and let's just open everything up and go back to normal, you know, and on and on and on and on and on. 
And then, of course, there's the folks on the other side who are saying, we don't know enough. We know more than we did six months ago, but we don't know enough about this virus. We don't have a vaccine. People are getting sick. Some are minor, uh, mid-range, and some die. Uh, you know, 145, 146,000, I think, as of our conversation here. <clears throat> and it's like, okay, so, so where do you start? And that's why we've been promoting here on this station, 2020, the year of perfect vision, encouraging people to go within. That's where you're going to get your answers. Maybe you're not going to get your literal answers to what this virus is and how we combat it and so forth. No, 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 no you're going to get the guidance to go in the direction that you are be that is best suited for you to maintain a level of calm of peace of maybe even tranquility and at least get the guidance and inspiration and so forth uh i want to go down to the grocery store today and yet your your guidance is saying no not now wait a couple of hours then go because if you go now you may put yourself, you may put yourself in harm's way. So just take it easy, relax, um, get something to drink, <laughs> watch a TV show. You know, there's everything available. And um, it's going to be okay. Uh, and the fact is that um, my wife, who is at the, uh, she's high risk. She's 69. And she's high risk. And she works in the medical field. And she was furloughed for um, three months. And she's, got, she's now back to work. And even for her, it's scary. And I just try to remind her, I said, look, you're doing everything you can to keep yourself safe. You do everything you can to keep doing that. You do the best you can. And we hope, you know, I mean, unless you want to go ahead and stop going to work, which, you know, we'll figure out how we're going to do that. <clears throat> and... Um, and we'll move forward. Um, but I saw this as the land of opportunity. Um, didn't want people to get sick. I don't want people to die. But what I saw were incredible opportunities. And people are writing books like they're going out of style these days, whether it's about this or about other things that they're dealing with. And you and, and Eric uh, put together this really fascinating uh, work, which is rather intriguing. Uh, Fractus Europa, which is a series of stories that uh, spans uh, not just uh, authors, uh, but also spans different countries, uh, Bul uh, uh, Belgium and Germany, Ireland, Ukraine, Cyprus, Scotland, England, Holland, um, who am I for? Oh, the Baltic, as well as, um, what is this, Estonia, I think it is. And it all so is these stories were, were these authors given a mandate of some sort or a a, a direction or a, a general premise to follow so that these stories had this cohesive aspect to them yes this collection which was um the first short fiction anthology that uh, my imprint published was actually the brainchild of uh, my late friend eric party too soon. He, uh, he passed in 2018. Uh, but he was, Eric was a career intelligence officer and he used to war game scenarios of uh, what would happen in Europe if. That was his job. So uh, one of the things that he was able to do after he, uh, he left government service was, and he started writing books, uh, he and I together, and 
we, we, he had this idea, what becomes of Europe or the, the so-called European project uh, if things don't work, if you continue to have uh, pervasive uh, bickering between member states, if you continue to uh, not have lack of a fiscal uh, union, just to, you have a political union, but not a true economic one, if you continue to have uh, trade issues, if you continue to try to impose this this, this, you know, uh, singular European identity over what is a multi-ethnic polylingual uh, uh, patchwork quilt of member states. Uh, what happens if that all comes apart? So what he, hmm. he hit on was the idea of, let's see what, uh, Europa, what Europe looks like uh, as it comes apart, as told by people living there, or at least working there. And that was, that was the concept. So we decided to we'd go out to find all of these various writers who are they're journalists, they're finance, financial people, they work in security or intelligence, they're cops, and they just live and or work in the states that are described. Now, originally, we had a much broader uh, span. We whittled this down to what we thought were the most solid, uh, really readable stories. And you have to understand, we were up against, uh, we, we, we sort of had a double whammy to deal with on the one hand. A lot of these people had never written fiction, let alone short fiction before, which is a much more difficult form than you might think uh, to, to write properly and coherently. The second thing is for a lot of these people, English was not their first language and we were asking them to write in it. Uh, there were times when, when translators would have to be engaged. This is with uh, the Ukrainian author, uh, Daria Sipenko, who is, uh, we still don't know what happened. She disappeared halfway through uh, through production. Um, she lived, she was in the Donbass region uh, and she filed her story to us under great personal duress. Wow. And sometime 18, she vanished and we still haven't heard uh, hide her hair from her. We don't know if she's still around. Uh, she, and then Eric left. And uh, so that Fractus Europa actually, even before it was published, already had racked up a body count. Wow. Uh, so I, are, are, we, are we at risk here? <laughs> I no, feel comfortable, don't get me wrong. But just based upon that, I'm going, hmm, could I be next? You have to understand that Fractus Europa was conceived as, as a sort of fictionalized narrative of international collapse. Uh, of 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 the death of nations, of the death of a whole concept of a of a of a of a of an integrated region, and it actually was taking people down with it. Uh, so, is this pre or post uh, European Union? Well, it's, the European Union was a was a product of the late 1990s. So, this is but the, the 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 stories that are in Fractus Europa conceive of life beyond it. Okay. Uh, it collapsed from the inside. For example, Peter Heather's story, who is our English contributor, uh, writes about um, life in the UK post-Brexit. And this book was started in 2017 when Brexit was, if anything, just something that was being yelled about. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't anywhere near actual fruition. Now in 2020, we bring out Fractus Europa, Brexit is happening slowly, painfully, and with, I think, much greater uh, economic damage than anybody is able to, to, to really conceive of at the moment. But it's happening. It's real. Uh, yeah. You want to talk about other themes in the book? Russian adventurism? I, I, I pick one. The Baltic states. Pick, uh, I mean, we, pick Syria. All right? Russian, Russia has now established its first military outpost in the Mediterranean since the Crimean War in the mid-19th century. And this this is our reality. This is this is no longer just what was given to these authors as a concept in 2017. Now in 2020, most of what's in the, between those covers of the book you're holding has come to pass. 
So, Most so in it. other words, this was fiction, <laughs> and now it's in the nonfiction section. That's what it sounds like. Now, what I find interesting is that you chose uh, that the, the, the European Union and that part of the world uh, uh, was chosen as opposed to any other part of the world. And it seems to me for a very logical and sensible reason, and that's because no other part of the world seems to have this, this uh, uh, centuries-old dynamic uh, that's been going on. Uh, yeah, where you don't have that kind of dynamic going on in the Americas. You don't really have that kind of dynamic going on in Asia or Africa uh, and Middle so East. forth. Or, or even the Middle East, although they've got their own problems. Uh, but it seems like th there's always been this, and my wife and I love watching the movies and uh, TV series on uh, uh, the various parts of Europe during the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, even to the 19th century, uh, as far as the grappling for power and control and, and uh, playing the manipulative games and, and so on and so forth. And so it seems to me like this is absolutely the most appropriate uh, locale, if you will, if you want to call it that, or part of the world to focus on in this regard. Now, in terms of uh, Eric's uh, uh, intelligence work, was you, do, are you thinking, and I'm kind of tying this into the body count as you refer to it, are you think that maybe that some of these stories are so accurate that the, the quote-unquote powers that be really don't want this, this, you know, it's, it's kind of like they say, we're not going to tell you the truth about aliens. We're not going to tell you the truth about coronavirus. We're not going to tell you the truth about 9-11 or the Kennedy assassination or that, 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 the list goes on. Because if I may quote Jack Nicholson, you can't handle the truth. To which I say, who are you to decide what I can or cannot handle? Do you think that's kind of that's part of it no 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 i don't see if people don't realize that the the so-called powers that be in, in these conspiracy theories um they have a lot of they don't really grasp just what kind of muscle that they have to deploy or not uh if the powers that be wanted to stamp you out they'd come over and they'd stamp and you'd know what a stamping was uh if the government wanted to prevent the publication of this book which only took three years to hit the shelves they had plenty of chances to do it. So no, I don't think it was anything. And remember, this also is fiction. As I learned when I started writing my own books 10 years ago, uh, something can't be classified if it's imaginary. You, okay. cannot buy, you cannot box in the realm of the imagination uh, to make stuff up. Uh, the movies that you and your wife like to watch about power grappling, there's, there's ones that are much more modern about uh, when, what happens when in, instead of people grappling for power, people start wrestling with machines. Yeah. Uh, there, there, there was a that kind of a cheesy movie that came out years ago called Stealth uh, about um, a robot aircraft. That's actually happening right now. The Air Force is, also, is already uh, in, in you know, advanced development of uh, the, the Loyal Wingman Project or the mm -hmm. Skyborg Project. All of these are very real. They're already discussed. I'm not betraying any national secrets by talking about this with you now. Uh, they've been written on in the press. Yeah. And uh, this is stuff that is actually happening. 
uh, that as you know, events sort of overtake reality and you, you begin to wonder what your place is in the actual food chain. Uh, because there's now a new player. It's not just uh, the animal, vegetable, mineral, and, and man. Uh, now you have machine in, in, as part of the equation. And those machines also are going to be a, uh, a contributor to the next seismic redrawing of the map. That's what Eric and I were trying to get at when we first came up with Fractus Europa. And by the way, the reason that we chose Fractus Europa is for the name. We were, we were hearkening back to the Roman Empire and the, the collapse of that, so we had a historical precedent. Fractus Europa was conceived as the pilot in a series of anthologies, Fractus Asia, probably parts one and two, because there's so many member states, Fractus Africa, Fractus America, also parts one and two, um, Fractus Arabia, and so on. And the, there, there is this kind of, of tectonic conflict going on uh, geographically in most regions, not all. Uh, I don't see Scandinavia as coming apart at the seams. However, if you look at Norway, and the Norwegians are understandably nervous because Russia just parked a division of troops right along their border. Uh-huh. Okay? That's enough to make anybody a little bit anxious, just I would say. Just a little. Just a little. <laughs> uh, you know, and Russia is currently headed by a guy who makes no bones about wanting to, to basically go back and buy up all the real estate lost formerly owned by the Soviet Union. Uh, she's been quite open about it. And there are also doctrines, advanced programs, one of them has been in development since at least the late 80s, I, I, I shouldn't say, probably mid-90s, it's the, the concept of asymmetric warfare uh, by one of Putin's own uh, generals, a rising armor uh, uh, guy, uh, who said that, you know, it's not all about how many bombers and, and tanks we can put in the field anymore. This is about cyber. This is about disrupting command and control systems. This is about putting, you know, fifth columns in seeding populations in, in target nations that we want to take over. It's not about crossing swords. Uh, as Eric himself used to say, World War III won't be about the next great stealth plane uh, or hypersonic missile or something about that. World War III is going to be about who can turn off the other guy's lights back first. <laughs> I'm stocking up on batteries and propane. <laughs> uh, today, and that's Ukraine, where Daria Sapenko uh, hailed from yeah. uh, the East uh, region. You didn't have, uh, you know, the, the, the Red Army, sorry, not the Red Army anymore, but the Russian Army. You didn't have them going in full bore, armor, plane, Russian style Blitzkrieg. Yeah. Uh, it was more subtle than that, much more integrated than that, much more cyber kinetic than that. That's the new face of warfare. Mm -hmm. uh, Saudi Arabia just got hit, uh, just uh, had their oil capacity cut in half overnight by drones. Hmm. When, when did the Mideast, which people in the West sometimes look at as, 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 as being sort of stuck in the Middle Ages, they're fielding unmanned weapon systems right now that can, can, they can reach out and do more than turn off the lights. They can turn off your, your manufacturing. They can turn off your output. They can stop the machinery of your society. They flip the switch. Mm. That technology is being widely distributed in places. We saw it during the Iraq War in 06 when you had the greatest intelligence apparatus in the history of mankind being stymied by a couple of, uh, of guys on the ground in a foxhole who were using $20 software downloaded from the internet originally developed by Russian college students who wanted to watch internet pornography for free. <laughs> well, you know, this whole scenario is very interesting. What I find fascinating, I've never been able to wrap my brain around it. Uh, you mentioned Putin. <clears throat> and 
I think about these, these dictators, uh, these individuals who want to rule the world. As uh, I go, is it George Michael used to say, you know, everyone wants to rule the world. Well, not everybody does. I don't. And I've been trying to figure out what the hell their end game is. Whether you believe in the conspiracy theories and the powers that be, what is the hell is their end game? Uh, and so on and so forth. And someone shared with me from their perspective, their end game is <clears throat> that they want to be able to control uh, what people say and do. They want to be able to keep an eye on them. They want to make sure that everybody is lockstep uh, in line with the party and so on and so on and so on. And I'm thinking, and this is just from my perspective, I'm thinking, that's a stupid end game. You're now as much a prisoner as you are making prisoners of your citizens because you have to maintain it's like any prison any penal institution there are two sets of prisoners the ones who have been put there by the judicial system and the ones who have to watch over them they're as much in prison as the others yeah sure the others can leave they can leave when you know at the end of their shift but then they come back again and they're constantly putting themselves in the line of fire um so when you talk about these geopolitical, uh, if I'm using the term correctly, uh, issues, especially when you deal even in fiction with Fractus Europa, uh, these are, of course, stories edited by uh, the late Eric Anderson and Adam Dunn, who we are talking with here on the program. What's, what would you conceive of from the fictional standpoint of these, these stories? What's the end game for these countries is it just as you mentioned like for example with putin just to regain the land that they lost uh in the last 20 30 years or is there something bigger that we are unaware of as the end game or is it as i've described they just want to control and have power over their their dictators their uh what are the what's the word uh um Oh, self-centered uh, individuals. And I can't think of the one word that everybody's been using uh, to, to they self, self-aggrandizement, if you will. Can you, can you well, describe their end game? That's, that's about half a dozen questions uh, all at once. So let's, I, let's I understand. Um, <clears throat> first of all, you, you asked, you know, what, what, what do tyrants with power want? And this, the short answer is more power. That's been true all throughout history. It's true now. The more benign version answer to that question is what goes best with chocolate? More chocolate. Uh, because you, you know, too much of a good thing can be, as, as the late Mae West put it, wonderful. So uh, if the, the end game, if, uh, if you see it from a historical perspective, is simply the, you know, the, the ever-increasing agglomeration of power, uh, then you want uh, you know, a Bashir Assad or a Tayyip Erdogan um, becoming a regional hegemon. And um, I just, if you look at Turkey today, it's not that far-fetched to conceive of Turkey's moves. After all, Turkey has tried for years to enter NATO and gotten very rudely and bluntly uh, shoved off. So and they're, they're, they're looking at the, uh, the map. They've, they've got problems with all of their neighbors. They've got problems. They've got ethnic, political, economic uh, <clears throat> resource uh, trouble. Well, they're going to, there's only so long when Turkey, which has one of the largest standing armies on the planet, is going to do this. Let's not forget that the, you know, the, the Turks themselves were one of the, the seismic forces that poured into the, the, the remains of the Roman Empire and upended the whole apple cart. Uh, the, the, the Turks, who are not Arabic peoples, uh, they, they 
they look around at the, the, the rest of the Middle East, and I think they, or at least the man in charge of Turkey, is saying, we can do better than this. Uh, we can do more than this, and yeah, we can, we can pull it off. So whether they actually do that remains to be seen. Now, uh, as far as the prison wardens becoming their own prisoners, um, there, I recently remember I, um, my, my children asked if he, they, they, they said, Dad, what, what were some of the movies that you liked when you were a kid? So uh, I got one. I hadn't watched it in a decade. Walt Disney's The Black Hole. And in The Black Hole, which I hadn't watched in so many years, but I sat and I watched it with my sons. And they were, they were watching it. They said, wow, Dad, you, you, what, what do you like about all this? And I said, well, you know, I, you know apart from all of the, the, the ideas, which were kind of new to put up on screen then, uh, the dynamic of it is pretty old. Here you have this guy, this rogue scientist, who is who thinks that he can do it all. He can even conquer nature and play God and, and, and rule the black hole. But once these, you know, this other crew of outsiders come, what does he actually ask them to do? He asks them to rescue him. Uh, the mad scientist on board of the ship, which is about to go through the black hole, is a prisoner of his own creation, which is a big red muscle bot called Maximilian. Uh, and he actually says on camera to the, the captain of the, 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 the visiting crew, he says, please protect me from Maximilian. Uh, he has created something which has actually imprisoned himself. Uh, did he think this could actually happen? No, probably not when he did it. But what did actually, th this is, you know, you think you can predict the future? Ah, think again. Okay, because the future is not set, it's not finite, and it's, it's certainly not utterly predictable. It's all of these various streams and eddies. Look at a river. Uh, flowing. Can you predict the flow of, of each strand, each each diverse current? No, you can't. Uh, there's just too many random variables. There's too much wanting it. That's that's the problem that I think that strong men have with trying to to assert too much authority too soon over too broad an area. Is there's too many interlocking wants, uh, and you have to take into that all that of like trying to to count grains of sand on a beach, I think. And after a while, I think they throw up their hands and they say, you know what, forget what everybody else wants. I'm gonna do what I want. This is, I think, the ultimate pathology of the so-called strongman. Uh, I want what I want, I want it now, and I can do it. And I really don't care what anybody else thinks about it because this is, this is what I, I, me, mine, okay? My, you know, my wants, my, my vision, my timetable. And, and who cares about anybody else? So, Beyond that, where this all leads to, I don't have an answer. Eric did. What we did was we tried to offer a framework that would, where people who were living in this particular region tried to envision what the day after tomorrow would look like themselves, where they live and work themselves, what it would look like if the so-called European project was no more. And what you, the answer, their answers to that, their conceptual answers to that are what uh, formed Fractus Europa. Now, I, I repeat, Fractus Europa was conceived of three years ago. A lot of water under the bridge since then and a lot of new developments in and around Europe and Europe itself, let's not forget, Europe hardly exists in a vacuum. One of the things that we could not foresee back in 2017, which I think is very much going to be the leading issue now, isn't going to be so much a sort of grand disintegration or, 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 or just be all, Europe's not going to disappear overnight in the, in the blink of an eye. What I think people are not taking into account right now is of we have created uh, a massive, massive trap for ourselves called debt. 
and pretty much every large nation, uh, even the small nations, uh, are guilty of this because the large nations have generated massive, massive amounts of debt. We started doing it in 2008. We started doing it before that. But 2008 was the first real big explosion on a quantum level that we have seen. And now this year, just in the past six months, you've seen, I mean, just trillions of dollars. The EU just you know, approved a multi-trillion dollar, sorry, multi-trillion euro package. Uh, relief aid after weeks of what I thought would pretty much be a barroom brawl in you know, the, the higher offices across Europe. Of, <clears throat> is that going to save them? I don't know. Probably not. Uh, I think two things have happened since then. One is Europe has allowed itself to become addicted to Russian oil and gas for its energy sources. Uh, that's why they're in, you, you see this strong green push and the greens are taking over a lot more, taking greater percentages of European governments uh, to do this uh, because everybody sees what's coming. Uh, if you get, um, you get hooked on Russian gas and oil, you can't, get, you can't get that monkey off your back quite so quickly. The second thing that's happening in Europe, mostly to the east, but now creeping into Italy, Hungary, and so on, um, is China's Belt and Road Initiative. That was something that really was embryonic back in uh, 2017, at least as far as we uh, in the Western world knew about it. Now it's going at full tilt. The only thing that has even caused a hiccup in China's Belt and Road Initiative is coronavirus. Uh, that's the only thing that has actually stopped because it, it, what, it, what the virus threw into sharp relief is the staggering debt load assumed by these smaller nations. Uh, when China came along and said, oh, yeah, you need infrastructure. We'll build your roads. We'll build your hospitals. We'll build your cities. You just sign over the rights to everything. You just sign control over to us. Exhibit A is Pakistan. Exhibit B is uh, Myanmar. Exhibit a, it, It's going to go on and on and on. What is happening here is that um, the emperor and the czar, if you will, are on a collision course uh, as they move to take over the world without firing a shot. Um, that that um, sort of economic uh, cold war, that 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 race to the finish line, is going to heat up. Uh, it's already heated up in the South China Sea. I think it is heating up uh, in Scandinavia. And the next one is going to be the next book that I explore. It's going to heat up at the top of the world uh, as the um, the Arctic ice pack recedes and everybody tries to get in under the ice. If, you know, nobody knows what's down there. It's been ice locked since the dawn of time. So <clears throat> I think that what is going to happen is that the former nations that think they have been center of the world stage are suddenly going to find themselves kicked out to the wings or maybe they're just going to wake up and realize they have been in the wings for years now. Uh, and that the two new big gangs on the block, if you will, are going to have a turf war, which basically is the entire globe. The world, the, the world is one corner. You got two gangs fighting it out. One's called Russia. One's called China. The rest of us need to survive that coming brawl. And I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how long it will take, what forms it will take. And I don't know what the collateral damage will be. I don't have a crystal ball. Eric didn't. Uh, I don't think it's going to be pretty. Uh, and I think it, the, I do think that the leading indicators of it will not necessarily be geopolitical, if you will, or, or overtly military, let's say. I think they will be financial. And I will leave you, Mr. Dugan, with just this one thought. Back in 2011, in the wake of the, uh, the last financial crisis, when the EU imposed harsh austerity measures on so many of its member states, witness what happened in Greece in 2011. Mm. Uh, I don't mean the riots in Athens. I don't mean, mm. I don't mean the, 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 the bonfires in the streets. What happened was a fundamental shift to something older. You saw the outbreak of barter 
across Greece. Mm -hmm. You saw Greek citizenry turning away from what they perceived to be a fiat currency endlessly manipulated by powers that be law far beyond their sight or control. And they went back to something which is much more older and fundamental and long predates money. That's when you saw people really taking matters into their own hands to try to secure their immediate future. Uh, I'll trade you that gallon of milk for the shotgun. I will trade you uh, that cow for my 15-year-old VW uh, or uh, a crate of 7.62 millimeter ammunition mm -hmm. or water. Uh, you will, you, when you see that, that turning away from, after all, one of the most fundamental underpinnings of institutions around the world, money, when you see a turning away from a consensual medium of exchange that we all agree upon, when people say, forget that, uh, I need to eat, so mm -hmm. do my kids, I need to get past tomorrow. And the framework that we have been living all our lives in, that for, at the moment looks like a mirage. And when you have that kind of fundamental turning away from institutions to, shall we say, the pre-institutional ways of being, mm -hmm. that's, that's your biggest red flag. That's your loud four alarm klaxon going. Uh, and that could be, it wasn't in 2011, thankfully. It was not the death knell for society as we know it. Uh, but I would say that that was a very, very strong leading indicator that woke up a lot of the powers that be that said, wait a minute, we got to get this under control now before this gets, just this spins out of control permanently. Mm -hmm. And we forget about redrawing a map because there's not going to be any map anymore. All right. Whereas you can just throw out all the, the rules of the chess game because of the, the chess board's on fire. So, I would say that the leading indicators of this coming battle uh, of the Eastern Titans, and the star has certainly moved all the way to the East. It has been for years. This is nothing new. Uh, but as these Eastern Titans, I think, try to tighten up their grip and, and decide who's going to run the corner, uh, I think the leading outliers that the rest of us can try to see and hopefully position ourselves in the wake of so that we can survive the day after tomorrow. Those are going to be financial because uh, the world now no longer runs on money. The world runs on debt. Debt is used to, for governments to survive, for societies to survive, to finance future projects for corporations to, uh, to, to exist one quarter to the next. Uh, so the world runs on debt and debt has become weaponized. It has been weaponized passively in the form of programs like the Belt and Road Initiative or resource allocation like oil and gas pipelines. Uh, what happens when that rather cool weaponization of debt turns hot? That, Mr. Dugan, I think is what we all should be looking ahead to planning for. And all I can say is I really wish Eric were here because I could really use some of his advice for this. I'd be yeah. asking him. You're asking me. Well, I'll tell you that, that during the 1980s, and I was only in my 20s at that time, um, as Reagan began to talk about, uh, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, and so on and so forth, and I began to see this in the, in the mid-80s, I predicted, and I'm no prophet, don't get me wrong, but just my observations, I predicted that the United States and the Soviet Union would trade places. We would become them, they would become us. 
And quite honestly, with what I see happening in the streets of America today, uh, matter of fact, there are incidents that are happening, not just with the, the protesters and some of the violence, but the response by our own government. It has been said by one gentleman who was in Congress in 2002 and 2003, during <clears throat> the times when they were trying to pass and did pass the Homeland Security Act and the Patriot Act, that what is happening now, he predicted, and that's why he voted no on those two packages because he, he could see the writing on the wall if they passed these. And when I heard the name of the program, Homeland, I'm thinking, what are we, Germany? Under Hitler? Are you kidding? And I wasn't, I'm not labeling George, C, George Jr. As, as Hitler, but it was like, wait a minute, could you guys not come up with something more creative than Homeland Security? Thank God they didn't call it Fatherland. My wife jokingly said there was a committee meeting and apparently that name did circulate the room and they decided, nah, there's too much negative energy behind that name. We need, we need to come up with something else. Uh -huh. But I saw that happening. I mean, I, I could feel that if we found a way to quote unquote dismantle the Soviet Union, the USSR as it was back then, uh, then we would become like them. And isn't that kind of the way that it happens? You have to be very careful about how you approach and uh, find ways to defeat your enemy. Because if you're not careful, you then become the very enemy that you were trying to defeat in the first place. I mean, that's, that seems to me to be a fairly logical uh, conclusion in terms of the realities of the world, not fiction, uh, but even the realities that, uh, that some of these dictators, they don't seem to, they don't seem to, they have very little fore, foresight. They have no 2020 vision, if you will, um, because they're so egotistical. They're so, uh, so self-centered in getting what they want, when they want, how they want. And I'm noticing that in the citizens of this country, uh, especially those who do not want to wear masks, who do not want to do the things they think, because they think this is a hoax, this COVID-19 is a hoax. Uh, and they want to use the Constitution as their backup, saying, hey, I have the constitutional right to do what I want, when I want, where I want, how I want. I don't have to wear a mask. It's not my problem, et cetera, et cetera, until it becomes their problem. They become infected. They end up in the hospital. They end up on a respirator. And if they survive, they're going, oh, I guess I should have worn a mask. And they suffered through all of this. Um, what do you think about that scenario in terms of uh, a quote unquote democracy or some people keep saying that this is a republic. I think it, I had an interview with a gentleman many years, uh, not too many years ago, wrote a book called We Need a Movement, How to Return to a Rational Form of Government. My first question to him was, when was the last time we had a rational form of government? He says, about two to three minutes after the ink dried on the constitution. Because at that moment, everybody was jockeying for position. But what do you think about that aspect of uh, turning into that which you are fighting against? If you will. Hold on. Uh, you you want to defeat a monster, the best way to do it is uh, you, you become a monster. You become a bigger monster. What happens when you can't turn back? What happens when you can't put the monster back in the box? Uh, as far as... Uh, well, it's what we talked about earlier. I mean, we, if cooler heads do not prevail, if, if impulse trumps rationality, uh, then 
then you have a national fever. And the fever really has to run its course. Uh, maybe you do have to have enough people getting sick and reaching that end game that you just described where they, they say, oh, wait a minute, maybe I made a mistake. Uh, right now, we're, we're, we're very far away from that because, again, it's too easy and too seductive to feel and there's too many wants. I want this, I want that, and I want, and me, my rights. The Constitution is for me. The Constitution isn't for everybody. The Constitution becomes individualized. What we see, I think, is also a growing trend towards individuation, uh, where you have this, this myth of, of the individual uh, being touted as, you know, this group, uh, this interest, uh, this, that, and, you know, as individual rights uh, are put to the fore. What you actually have happening, if you look underneath that, <clears throat> is uh, the collective, uh, which is actually taking over. And what you have is the replacement of one orthodoxy with really another orthodoxy. And again, uh, emotional action, hysterical, reactive legislation, that's the conduit for these, these sorts of sweeping changes, which can only uh, be undone and reversed after years of hardship and suffering and, and, uh, and a, a national collective, if you will, just wake up of, Oh God, this is, this is, this sucks. You know, we, we don't need this. Let's, let's, time to make a change. We're light years away from that, Mr. Dugan. And, uh, there will have to be more, more pain and more, I guess, more hard lessons learned that, um, that rationality, that, 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 that burying rationality under a tide of impulse, uh, and one and chopping off all the cooler heads, uh, or shouting down all the voices of reason. Uh, that that's going to lead you down a road that ends in a dead end. And you need to have that realization come. And we're a long ways from that, Mr. Dugan. Yeah. Uh, first of all, uh, you can call me Richard. Mr. Dugan's my father. <laughs> and second of all, let me ask you a question about Einstein's statement about insanity, the definition. It's doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Okay. When the pandemic was declared... Uh, and we started seeing our cases in the United States. Uh, and they decided for the first time in my short little 60 years on the planet that uh, they were going to shut things down. I applauded. I applauded saying, thank God, we're going to do something different, which means we're going to get a different result. What are your feelings or thoughts on uh, the, that definition being applied to this current situation in that this time we're not going to do nothing. We're going to do something. It's going to be different. We may not like the result, but at least it's going to be different. Uh, and that, that could, uh, have a, uh, could play, I don't know, maybe play a factor in, uh, how things turn out. If, since we've, we've turned down a different road this time when it comes to some kind of uh, virus or what have you sweeping the globe like the influenza does every year. Influenza does every year. Well, I'm not really sure that we are doing anything different after all of California, several counties in Texas, uh, these, uh, the, the, these states already are locking down again. And so they are revisiting as far as I'm concerned, we're back where we were in March. Uh, you, you have a, the, the, the difference now being the, um, the disparity, the, the growing chasm between uh, public policy and, and private action. Uh, in this case, public policy is you know, sweeping and declarative and proclaiming and almost always wrong. Uh, private action in this case is the race to the cure, which is now the fastest in human history. Uh, we are trying to do the fastest vaccine ever developed, as I understand it, 
please feel free to, to prove me wrong, uh, was months, which took four and a half years from development to application. We're trying to do months in four and a half months. The mm. difference now is uh, through private action largely. Uh, you have probably the one of certainly the greatest historical uh, uh, fire hoses of talent and capital being aimed at a problem, a single problem uh, that's ever happened before. The, the, and it is in the end for a humanitarian reason, but it's being done through private action. The only public policy action I can think of that's comparable within the last century, uh, it was the Marshall Plan, where after bombing uh, the, the, the European heartland back to the Stone Age, uh, we undertook this massive relief mission, uh, starting with the Berlin Airlift and, and beyond it, for to rebuild the places that we had just destroyed. That had never been done before. The conquerors never helped the conquered. That's just not the way it works. Mm. Uh, did something different then, post-1945. And we saw the results in um, the you know, lightning rebound of Western Europe, which became the buffer against the Soviet Union for the next 70 years. Um, we are now trying to undertake a private, much more direct, after all, we're not out to save a nation, we're out to save the planet. Uh, we have about 140,000 dead that we know of confirmed. What if you add a zero to that? What if you add three or four zeros to that? Mm -hmm. What becomes of the world that you live in when there aren't enough people to populate? And I don't know that, at least on a public front, we are doing anything differently in the hopes of achieving any kind of new results, so we're not going to get one. Uh, private action, I think, at this stage is really the only game in town uh, hopefully without too much public policy interference right now, you're actually not getting interference. You're getting this massive and somewhat distorting support where you have these huge government contracts. You know, we're going to buy a billion doses uh, of this, that, or the other. Uh, what you're doing is taking profit out of the equation because uh, as with um, whoever it was, was it uh, Pfizer? Uh, the latest government contract will mm -hmm. uh, yeah. a billion doses contingent upon it being effective and say, right. uh, we'll do all this and you're going to make it available to people for free. Free? So who's going to pay for all of this development? Who's going to pay for all of this manufacturing? Ah, your tax dollars will. Mm -hmm. okay. Now, again, we've never done anything like this before, so we don't know what effects this will have and what knock-on effects. As Eric would say, we're not thinking about, people aren't even thinking about first consequences, let alone second, third, and fourth ones, uh, because it's very different to envision the unprecedented. However, I think it behooves us to start thinking about what, let's say, what market reactions are this going to have when you essentially subsidize uh, big pharma and yoke it to uh, the greater good of trying to save the lives of everybody from a, a virus. And let's not forget, viruses do one thing, they reproduce. And in the course of reproducing, they mutate. Uh, we're still fighting a war against COVID-19. We're already on COVID-20. Pretty soon we're going to be on COVID-21 and 22 and 23 and all of its new little cousins that it creates in the course of nature. Uh, as with flu vaccines, I stopped getting flu shots years ago because I found that they were largely ineffectual. Uh, and <clears throat> you know, every strain, every season is different. You're never dealing with one strain. You're, not, you're, dealing, you're dealing with a virus, which by the way, doesn't care who you are, what, how old you are, where you live and what your zip code is, what you have in the bank, what color your skin is, or who you sleep with. It's a virus, cares about re reproducing itself. That's <laughs> it, all right? So there is no one target group. And this is what I think is, is, is different 
realizing that, wow, we are all in the crosshairs. Uh, and thus, if we can actually deploy our resources for the greater good, but let's do it private, let's take the public shackles off the, the, the private sector and let's see if they can actually come up with some silver bullet that stops this thing and prevents it from getting any worse and prevents people from getting, after all, what a vaccine is as opposed to a treatment. A vaccine is a prophylactic. A vaccine is a condom against this kind of thing coming back year after year after year. If you strip it down to its genetic sequence and you can come up with that silver bullet that will stop this thing before it can use your body as a copying machine. Uh, if you can do that, that, Mr. Dugan, that's doing something different. Yeah. Uh, there yet? No, we're trying. And again, as Eric would say, we got to stop and think about second, third, and fourth consequences. What happens when governments around the world join hands, pull the yoke off of the world pharmaceutical industry, use all of their constituents' taxpayer money to subsidize it, and turn this new silver bullet loose on the world, which, by the way, has not been proven to be safe or effective. I, for one, will not be the first up to get the jab in the arm when this thing hits the market, uh, because I don't know how, again, you're trying to redo mumps, four and a half years of research and, 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 and data collection in four and a half months. You can't do that uh, safely and effectively, or if you can, maybe you can. I'm not a virologist, I'm not an epidemiologist. Yeah. I don't as an individual to say whether this thing is going to work or not. I do know as an individual that you should be watching uh, the outliers of what this this different course of action now has on the effects of the other pillars of society. What's it going to mean for manufacturing? What's it going to mean for medicine? What's it going to mean for finance? And what ultimately will it mean to the different strata of society as a whole if we can't, for example, get a vaccine into the American public, into the American vein by, let's say, the first day of school, which in my district is August 31st, uh, if you can't do that then, what's gonna to happen to a generation of children who are out of school for a year or who can't see friends for a year? What happens to, to, to the progeny that is supposed to, to, to shape the future uh, when its present is essentially in stasis? That's what I think you need to be watching for and considering the implications of and preparing now for, and there are ways that we can prepare it starting at, starting with, I would say, keeping a cooler head. Uh, I do. This is something I say to my sons almost every single day. Getting frustrated, getting angry, that doesn't solve the problem. That creates more problems than it solves. You cool down. You go from feeling to thinking, and you stop the train. That's, I come down to their level. My, my, my youngest is six years old. This is something that he can understand. He loves trains, and he see, when I say you want to stop the train from leaving the station, the train that leaves the station is all smoke and noise and, and, and screeching metal and everything. That's anger. What you want to do, if you want to solve the problem, you stop that train. You go from feeling to thinking and you keep a cool head and you work the problem. That is something that we can do as individuals, no matter what state we live in, no matter what strata of society we occupy, no matter what invisible person in the sky we may worship, no matter how old we are, what we have in the bank. If we can actually stop the, the national pandemic, uh, across the global pandemic of, of, extinguishing rationale, of favoring impulse over rationality and really ex using impulse one to extinguish the other, then maybe we do do something different. Until then, we are condemned to repeating uh, the same thing over and over. I want to thank you. 
Adam Dunn, who is the co-editor of Fractus uh, Europa, along with his uh, uh, co-editor, uh, the late uh, Eric uh, Anderson. I want to thank you for joining us here on the program. And I have three quick questions before we close out the program that I'd like to ask all my guests. And I'll make this brief since you have to run. The first is, who is Adam Dunn? I am a writer, a publisher, and a producer in the lovely leafy state of Connecticut, and Dunn Books uh, was started in 2014 uh, with the aim of uh, bringing more geopolitical thrillers to the fore, and uh, a year later, we, I, I was able to start the development arm of that, Aurelian Productions, which uh, took uh, the books that uh, I first wrote, uh, Rivers of Gold, Big Dogs, and Sin Underground, and took them to the screen. You can see them on Amazon Prime now on a show called Big Dogs. I will look for big dogs. We have Amazon Prime. Second question. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now? To focus more attention, first of all, uh, to hopefully increase literacy and, and love of reading and writing, mm. uh, but also to, see, to, to get people to see that the systems underpinning the world uh, go far beyond what you're taught in school uh, what you do at your job, and what uh, the head of you know the, the office in whatever town, state, or city, or country you may live in tells you. Uh, you want to look at the underpinning, the, 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 the underlying dynamics that actually shape uh, the present, the near future, and the day after tomorrow. And those, I think, are inherently geopolitical in nature. They are market force as well as military force, and they are very much interconnected. And the final question, what is your life's purpose? Not to screw up. <laughs> okay. I appreciate that. And I thank you so much for giving us so much time. I, uh, I look forward to uh, hearing more from you through your fictional works. In this case, Fractus Europa Stories. And uh, it is available, as you say, through Dunn Publishing. Is that correct? Uh, the company name is Dunn Books. You can visit our website, dunnbooks.com. Uh, it is available on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. And we'll be linked to your website the same. Thank you again, Adam Dunn. Thank you for having me, Mr. Dugan. It was a pleasure. And we thank you for tuning in to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And we hope that you will join us for our next broadcast podcast. Until then, love to love.